Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org to our special program series. The date is Tuesday, August 21, 2012. And again, we feature a dear friend of Accessible World, our noted talk show host, Ira Fistel, who was on the Jordan Rich Show I guess it would be Sunday morning in Boston over the Internet. We're going to try to get an air check to share with everyone. We, uh, Jordan, if he can do it for us, I think will. And um, Ira is going to talk to us about the summer that reshaped America. Ira, welcome, and we're really enjoying your book, Ira Fistel's Mark Twain. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but the show that Jordan, rather, Jordan and I did on um, – Saturday night, Sunday morning, was also heard on WCCO in Minneapolis. We got two stations for the price of one. Great. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we'll get on tonight to a little bit of American history. Uh, 150 years ago this summer was the crucial summer of 1862. And I think you will you will see after this conversation is over why I call it the summer that shaped the rest of American history that, since that time in history. You don't start with what you are want, you know, eventually going to talk about. You start with the background. And it is important to recognize what came before the summer of 1862 and especially what didn't happen before 1862 and why it didn't. Uh, a major theme of American history has long been the rivalry and the differences between the North and the South. And now to these days between the, you know, the uh, East Coast and West Coast and North Central and the Southwest, South, uh, Southeast, rather, and the mountain and desert west. But it's the same thing. Uh, those areas have never been alike, and economically, socially, politically, and they're not alike today. Uh, but going back to 1820, to the Missouri Compromise, uh, you could see at that early, uh, even, even earlier perhaps, Thomas Jefferson spoke of slavery uh, as the fire bell in the night for the Union, uh, as it was. It was the, the uncompromisable issue. And in 1820, um, Henry Clay was faced with a situation that uh, he found an answer to, but it was not a permanent answer. And that was that Missouri wanted to enter the Union as a slave state. But if they did not have uh, the ability to win uh, the votes in Congress to get in, and they didn't, Maine wanted to come in as a free state. So what Clay did was to arrange a compromise that brought in Maine as a free state and Missouri as a slave state. And to make this palatable to the anti-slavery North, he put in a provision that there should be no slavery in any territory north of 36 degrees 30 minutes latitude except in the state of Missouri itself. Missouri goes north of that latitude by some distance. 
but uh, Clay's, uh, well, what would you say, uh, sop to the to uh, the non-slavery North was the Missouri Compromise Line. No slavery in the territories north of 36 degrees 30 minutes, and that lasted for well over 30 years. Meanwhile, as the population grew rapidly. And as it, after the War of 1812, which came to an end in 1815, uh, there was a tremendous movement across the Allegheny Mountains to the west. And people in the northern part of the country started to ask, why doesn't the federal government either reduce the price of land west of the Mississippi River, for example, or just give it away? Well, the Southerners didn't like that idea because it meant more free states. And they had just had a problem with having a, a slave state come in. They had to have a free state come with it. That was the, the precedent that was um, established by the Missouri Compromise to keep the balance between the free states and the slave states in the Senate. Uh, by, by the luck of the draw, there were eight free and eight slave states prior to the Missouri Compromise. And now, after the Missouri Compromise, they come in in pairs. Maine with Missouri. Uh, let's see, I'm not sure what all the all the states were, but uh, they came in together. Uh, I think it was Michigan and Alabama, uh, Illinois and Mississippi. But they come in as pairs so that the balance in the Senate is never disturbed. If the federal government sold cheap or gave away free land, and there wasn't enough territory that could support slavery in the Western territories because the climate was bad for slave, uh, slave crops, tobacco and, uh, and uh, cotton, then the northern states would inevitably uh, have more boats in the Senate. And the South's great nightmare, uh, the idea of Congress abolishing slavery, would be again a, a factor. So the South opposed the idea of free land in the West for anybody. Then there was the idea of tariffs. Uh, tariffs are charges against imports, which of course add to the price of what's being imported. The North, with its industrial economy growing and switching more and more to a commercial and industrial economy, wanted tariffs to protect northern industries against competition, particularly from Europe. But the South didn't have industry. It wanted low tariffs or no tariffs at all so that it could ship cotton and its tobacco to Europe and buy cheaply from foreign sources uh, in competition with the North. So that they, in other words, uh, the northern merchants would have to meet the, the competition of foreign powers if there were no tariffs. Well, the North wanted higher tariffs, the South wanted lower tariffs or no tariffs. And this came to a head in 1828 when the federal government did pass a higher tariff and the result was almost chaos. Uh, the, the, you, know, you start talking about secession. John C. Calhoun talked about nullification of uh, national laws by state legislatures as early as the crisis over the high tariff of 1828. So that's the second thing. And there were others. 
issues on which the more rural, uh, more plantation-dominated South, which of course maintained the uh, institution of slavery, would, wanted one thing, and the more industrialized and more populous and more commercial North wanted the exact opposite. So there was pressure building up as the West was filled. Um, one of my great professors, Avery Craven at the University of Wisconsin, professor of American history, wrote, and I think he's absolutely right, that the pressure to, uh, that caused the slavery issue to blow up and the country to blow apart came from the drive to fill the West and to see who would dominate the West. Because whichever section dominated the West would inevitably triumph over the other. And there were more people in the North, and there was more movement in the North, and there was more land that could be cultivated for crops like wheat, but could not be cultivated for tobacco or cotton, the primary crops for which slavery was used. So the pressure built from 1820 with the Missouri Compromise on, 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 until shortly before the Civil War. And it ended, of course, in the Civil War. Well, what was keeping the North from passing its economic program, the program that it wanted? Well, what was happening was the Southern representatives in Congress would always vote to kill any kind of national uh, bill that would, as they saw it, enhance the northern interests at their expense. And then in 1861, secession. Uh, South Carolina declared itself out of the Union on December 20th, 1860, and several other southern states followed, especially after Lincoln called for volunteers to put down the rebellion in South Carolina. And ultimately, 11 states seceded. There were 15 slave states, and the uh, new confederacy was made up of only 11 of them because four slave states never seceded. They remained in the Union even though they were slave states. Those four were Delaware and Maryland in the east and Kentucky and Missouri, the two border states on the west. They all had slavery throughout the war, but uh, they all did not secede and did not join the Confederacy. Comes the election of 1860, Lincoln wins, uh, a purely northern candidate. He didn't get a single vote in five southern states, not one popular vote. And yet he was elected because the north had more electoral votes. And uh, even though more people voted for the three other candidates in that race in 1860, they voted for Lincoln. Over two million for the three other candidates combined, and a million eight hundred thousand for Lincoln. Still, Lincoln won the electoral votes and was elected. South Carolina's reaction was to secede from the Union because they felt that uh, the rules that they uh, thought of as um, as protected by the Constitution, that the South would control the House or at least uh, get a fair break in the Senate and control the presidency, were changed. Now, the rules were changed, and they decided they didn't want to stay in the Union anymore. The threat of a federal government 
abolishing slavery was, even though it was only a threat, was too much for South Carolina and for the other southern states as they tumbled into secession in the early months of 1861. Well, secession meant that the southern congressmen went home. Now, in the election of 1860, the Republican Party, which was running a candidate for president for only the second time, it hadn't been founded until 1854, won control of both houses of the federal government. Fifty senators and 106, I believe it was, representatives out of 168, whatever it was, so that they had control of both houses even before the southern state representatives walked out. And when those people left Washington and went back south on the uh, grounds that they were no longer part of the Union, it left the Republican-dominated Congress with an incredible opportunity. All that legislation that had been bottled up for so many years all of a sudden became possible. One of the bills that had been bottled up was the, a Pacific Railroad bill. I hadn't talked about this one yet, but it's very important, just as uh, the Homestead Act was important. Uh, the Pacific Railroad bill was based on the assumption that there would be a railroad to California, but that there would only be one. Nobody foresaw the possibility of more than one railroad to California. So if there was only going to be one, then where it started in the Mississippi Valley would determine which section controlled the traffic. If it started in New Orleans or Memphis, the south would ultimately control California and the West. If, on the other hand, it started where the Northerners wanted, in Chicago or St. Louis, then inevitably the North, it was thought, would control California. California entered the Union after the gold rush as a free state in 1850, and California wanted a railroad very badly. Uh, they wanted to be connected to the states, as they called it in those days. Uh, they were so far away. You know, imagine how far away California was from, say, Boston or New York in terms of travel time. It was weeks, you know, before the railroad was built. It, it was weeks or even months to cross the, uh, the Great Plains and the deserts. So California was anxious to get the railroad. And then another factor developed. And that was in 1859, the discovery of the Comstock Lode in Nevada, so rich that it has never been matched in North America, the richest find of gold and silver ore ever in this part of the world. Discovered in 1859 and worked from 1859 increasingly uh, to a maximum. Its, its peak came about 1874, and then it went downhill after that. But ultimately probably over a billion dollars in silver and gold ore was taken out of the Comstock. And the Southerners were very jealous of all that money uh, going to the North. They wanted the Comstock for themselves. And there were Southerners in the Comstock who were not above the idea of trying to detach Nevada and bring it under the control of the South. All the more reason, then, why the North wanted a railroad to California through Nevada. 
The South, as I said, wanted it to go from New Orleans or Memphis, go through Texas and what is now Arizona and New Mexico, and reach Southern California instead of the gold rush country of San Francisco. All right. This railroad controversy was intensified after the admission of California in 1850. A series of surveys was done. Congress appropriated money to make surveys of several different routes to the Pacific Coast, two northern, two southern, and one central, if I remember correctly. The southern routes, of course, were from Memphis and New Orleans, the northern routes from Chicago and St. Louis, and one or more of these would have been uh, adopted, but uh, probably never more than one, as with the way they thought in those days. Well, the Southern Survey ran through a piece of Mexican territory in southern Arizona, which was not yet uh, owned by the United States. It wasn't in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So the Southerners had trouble convincing anybody in the Congress that that route should be chosen. The President of the United States in 1852, when all this came up, was Franklin Pierce, who was what they called a doe-face, a northerner who uh, submitted to the to southern ideas and southern uh, pressure. His Secretary of War was Jefferson Davis, later to be President of the Confederacy. And Davis arranged to send James Gadsden from Alabama to Mexico City to negotiate the purchase of that territory that was uh, the, the Southern Railway Survey ran through so that the Northerners couldn't use the excuse that it was going through Mexican territory against building that line. And Gadsden negotiated what is called today the Gadsden Purchase of Southern Arizona below the Gila River, and I think a piece of New Mexico also, uh, that the Gadsden Purchase was made specifically to uh, facilitate the acceptance of a southern survey uh, for a railroad to the Pacific Coast. The North replied with Stephen Douglas in the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, the great uh, objection the southerners could throw at a northern route was that it ran through uh, Nebraska and territory, and it was Indian territory, and it wasn't uh, organized and settled, and uh, they used that as their answer to the northern arguments against the southern line. Well, Stephen Douglas was a Chicago uh, resident, born in Vermont, but uh, lived in Chicago. And uh, he saw a main line from Chicago to California as not only good for the north as a section, but particularly good for Chicago as a city and for his property <laughs> in and around Chicago particularly. So he issued a, I should say introduced, a bill into Congress called the Kansas-Nebraska Bill, which would organize Kansas and Nebraska as two separate territories. Now, both of them were north of 36 degrees 30 minutes, the Missouri Compromise Line. But Douglas wanted to be president, and he saw himself as a candidate in 1856 who might be able to win the presidency. But to do it, he had to appeal to Southerners. He had to get some votes out of the South, especially running as a Democrat, against the new Republican Party. So Douglas created two territories out of Kansas and Nebraska. Nebraska would be free by definition, 
But Kansas, which was still above 36 degrees 30 minutes latitude, would be allowed to decide for itself whether it wanted to be slave territory or free territory. Well, the Kansas-Nebraska bill was seen as a sellout to the South by anti-slavery forces and uh, free soil forces in the North, and it barely passed, only because of arm twisting by the President Pierce, uh, getting the small majority of votes to pass it in both houses of Congress. And when it became law, the Kansas-Nebraska Act led to chaos in Kansas, because immediately people began to move into Kansas so that they could vote to have it be a slave state if they were sympathetic to slavery in the South, or to make it a free state if they came from the North. And inevitably, there was violence in Kansas, uh, what we call bleeding Kansas today, sort of a prelude to the Civil War. Uh, right in on the action was a man named John Brown, who you may have heard of before, with his sons. He went out to Kansas, and in retaliation for some deprivations by pro-slavery forces in Canada, Kansas, he and his sons murdered five pro-Southern uh, people in the town of Osawatomie. Amos Lawrence of the north, of the great uh, textile baron from Massachusetts, planted a colony in Kansas, which he financed, to keep it a free state. And it's known as Lawrence, Kansas to this day. It's where the University of Kansas is. It's always been the most liberal community in Kansas because it was founded specifically to keep Kansas uh, a free state. Well, this is what happened in 1857. Kansas starts a civil war, basically. This brings us up to what happened when this, the uh, Southern congressman walked out in Washington. The first thing that the Northern-dominated, Republican-dominated Congress took up was the issue of the tariff. Tariffs had been held down because of the Southern representation in Congress, but now, in 1861, the first year of the Lincoln administration, it was March in those days instead of January it is to, as it is today. The new administration didn't take over until March 4th. So the, one of the first things the new administration in Washington did was to raise the tariff. And a bill was proposed in the Senate by Senator Justin Morrow, a Republican from Vermont, and it won passage through the Senate and the House and was signed by the president and became the law of the land. The tariff was raised steeply in 1861, that was. But 1861 also had military consequences. The war began when South Carolina fired on Fort Sumter in the uh, early, let's see, April 12th, I think it was, uh, 1861. And immediately afterwards, both sides started raising troops. Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to serve for three months to put down what he called combinations too strong for the civil authorities to suppress. And uh, that is to say, the uh, secession of South Carolina had to be stopped. By Lincoln's thinking, he was elected to keep the Union together, and by golly, he was going to do it by force if necessary. Well, as soon as he called for those 75,000 volunteers, other southern states, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, all of them began to secede one by one until by late 1861, 
11 states had seceded. The other four slave states, as I mentioned before, never did. So the Confederacy, while it was planned to have 15 states, actually only had 11. Well, with the Moro tariff passed, there was confusion in the rest of 1871 because of the military situation. At the Battle of Bull Run, which was in July, the first Battle of Bull Run, or Manassas as the South calls it, the Southerners, with the troops joining the uh, Southern Army from uh, the Shenandoah Valley during the battle, brought by rail to a railroad junction, which was what Manassas was while the armies were there, uh, the Southerners routed the Northern troops at Bull Run. But they couldn't follow up by marching into Washington because their army was as disorganized by victory as the Union army was by defeat. And the governments on both sides settled down to teaching and training soldiers as to how to really fight. And after all, the United States Army was extremely small, and the U.S. had, outside of the Mexican War, uh, not fought any kind of a war since 1812 and was totally unprepared for a major conflict. So most of the attention in 1861, after Bull Run in July, was not on the economic program, but on getting troops ready to fight. This brings us to spring 1862. The Union uh, Army in the West, under the leadership of Ulysses Grant, who was appointed a, a, a general largely because he had been a West Pointer and had served in the Mexican War. Uh, he had no political connections or anything, but he had some experience as a commander. And he was made general of a bunch of unruly troops down in Cairo, Illinois, and he drilled them and trained them and made them soldiers. And meanwhile, watched the situation in the state of Kentucky. As I mentioned before, Kentucky was tumultuous. It had a governor who sympathized with the Confederacy. The legislature sympathized with the Union. The population was evenly divided between Southern sympathizers and Northern sympathizers. And both sides tried to influence Kentucky to either secede or to stay with the, with the North. Between the two, the Lincoln government had the better of it, because Lincoln was able to work through the local northern forces uh, without sending troops into Kentucky. But the Confederates wanted the Ohio River as a northern border for their new country. And the more Kentucky dilly-dallied and the stronger the Union forces in Kentucky became by Lincoln shipping them arms, the more nervous the Southerners got. At this point, enter General Albert Sidney Johnston. Johnson was a Texan who had long been a Southern sympathizer. He was stationed, of all places, in Los Angeles when the war broke out. And with his fellow Southern officers, he uh, resigned from the U.S. Army and started for the Confederate capital, Richmond. In, uh, I think, January, uh, I think it was, of 62. It may have been uh, December of 61. Anyway, it was that, around that time of the year. And before the Southern officers left, the remaining Northern sympathizing officers 
uh, gave them a great big party, a going away party. And some of those officers uh, who went south never again lived to see their friends who had stayed with the north. And some of the northern officers never again saw their friends from the south because they were killed too. It's a famous party. It took place at, uh, I think, at Drum Barracks in, uh, here in Southern California. Johnston was named commander of the Confederate armies in the West. Grant, meanwhile, was watching what the Confederates would do in Kentucky. And the pressure on the Confederates got too great. They were too nervous about their defense line on the Ohio River, and they decided that they had to crossed the border into Kentucky with Confederate troops to set up fortifications and keep the North out of Kentucky. Well, the day Grant heard about the Confederates moving into Kentucky, he took his troops, based in Cairo, Illinois, down, to, down the Mississippi on boats and up to Tennessee and seized and fortified the towns of Paducah and Smithland, which are 10 or 15 miles apart, on the Mississippi, Kentucky, in the western part of Kentucky. The reason he took those two towns was that they control the mouths of the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. The Tennessee flows into the Mississippi at Paducah. The Cumberland flows into the Mississippi in, uh, at Smithland, rather. And both of those two rivers are navigable way up into the deep south. And Grant's move led to the, the next step, which was to attack the fortifications that Johnson built to keep those rivers from being Union highways. Those forts were at the Tennessee state line. One was called Fort Henry on the, on the Cumberland, I think, and Fort Donelson on the Tennessee, or the other way around. But I think that's the way it was. Anyway, uh, this was February 1862. Grant moved immediately after taking the Rivermouth towns, moved immediately. Uh, Fort Henry had to be abandoned. It was not very high, and it was uh, vulnerable to Union boats shooting at it. So the Confederates abandoned Henry and put all the troops at Donaldson, uh, which was much stronger. And Grant's army went across land. The boats went around to the other river, and Grant closed in on the forts, and around Valentine's Day of 1862, captured Fort Donelson as well as Fort Henry and sent those Union ironclad boats all the way up the Cumberland and the Tennessee rivers and captured Nashville and on the Tennessee got all the way down to the Mississippi border where the river turns and goes back north again. So by the end of February of 1862, the south was in a good deal of a pickle and Albert Sidney Johnson knew it. Now, this brings us again to what's happening in Washington. And what I'm trying to do here is to show how the economic program that the federal government passed was influenced by the war itself, the action on the field. Donaldson and Henry fell in February. Johnston had to make a, a counter move. And he began calling in troops from all over the South to make a surprise attack on Grant's army somewhere near the great Alabama bend of the Tennessee River, uh, where Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi all come together. And amazingly enough, 
by April of 1862, Johnston not only got a, an army of 40,000 men together, but got it to within five miles of Grant's camp without the Union troops having any idea that there were 40,000 Confederates out there. And on April 5th, a Sunday morning, the Confederates attacked, nearly overran the Union positions, but failed at the end. Grant brought in uh, reinforcements the next day, and Johnston, unfortunately for the Confederacy, uh, was hit by a bullet in the leg, and it severed an artery. And it wasn't a major problem if there had been somebody there who knew what to do, but there was no doctor around, and nobody knew how to put a tourniquet on his leg. And Albert Sidney Johnston died from loss of blood on the battlefield on the first day of the Battle of Shiloh. And when the Confederate troops were forced to retreat on the second day, Shiloh stunned both sides. There had never been a conflict that big on the North American continent, and there had never been casualties like that in any battle since the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. Shiloh, approximately 80 to 90,000 men were engaged on both sides, and over 20,000 were killed and wounded. Percentage of almost one in four. Uh, it was a terrible shock to both sides that, uh, that this kind of damage could be done. And it foretold the fact that this was not going to be a picnic, a short, easy war, as everybody had thought it would be, uh, especially after Bull Run and an easy Confederate victory. Not after Shiloh. So this brings us to what goes on in Washington. Shiloh was a near miss. Uh, the North won all right, but only at the very end and a very close conflict. And it made it look as if, my goodness, this Confederate rebellion has some staying power, and they might even win. You know, the South might actually win its independence. The Southerners also took Shiloh as a sign to get more aggressive. And I think uh, you may not know this, but Southern troops from Texas tried to capture Santa Fe, New Mexico. And there was a battle of Glorieta Pass. Not a big battle, but there was a battle of Glorieta. And that, in that one, the North managed to attack the southern provision train and made the southern army retreat because they had nothing to eat. But all of this is happening in early 1862 when it looked like the Confederacy was on the way to possibly even winning the war. And it looked even more that way when in May, uh, a northern army under General George McClellan came within a few miles of Richmond and encamped and surrounded Richmond, uh, came up the peninsula between the York and the James Rivers and cut Richmond off from the sea. And it looked as if Richmond was going to be able to fall any day now. It was fighting at the end of May, and the Confederate commander, whose name was Joe Johnston, who served actually with distinction throughout the war, suffered a serious wound and had to be replaced. And the man who replaced him was Robert Edward Lee. And Lee was as good a commander as Johnston was. Lee was far more daring and far more effective. And Lee actually managed to drive McClellan and his 100,000 troops, who had been so close to Richmond that they could hear the church bells ringing, drove them away in May and early June of 1862. So things are not looking good for the North at this point. And then it got even worse. 
Stonewall Jackson, the Confederate general from what we now call West Virginia, but was still Virginia at that time, led an army of about 15,000 men into the Shenandoah Valley, which the northern end of which leads right into Washington. And he ran up and down the Shenandoah, defeating four or five separate federal forces, catching all of them by surprise because he moved so fast and hit so hard and uh, made it look as if the, the North was unable to, uh, to fight against the Confederates at their best. So by the spring of 1862, the South looked very strong, looked very good. What happens in Washington? Well, nothing happens on the economic front because the concern is all with the military. By May, Jackson was out of the valley, and Congress took time out to pass the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act granted any adult citizen of the United States the right to go out to the West, stake out 160 acres of free land, work it and live on it for five years, and get title to it. In other words, the uh, union offered the, uh, the individual farmer or the individual worker a chance to go out and own 160 acres of property for nothing in cash, no money at all. Homesteading was not a total success, but over the years, at least 600,000 people successfully homesteaded land and took title to it. And on top of that, 8 million acres were settled uh, by homesteading. And when the bill was finally repealed and homesteading ended in Alaska in 1977, it had been a major force in populating what up until 1862 was really barren territory in the West. This is how, homesteading was how so much of Nebraska and Kansas uh, were populated. And that has a connection with something that happens a little bit later. All right, meanwhile, after the Homestead Act was passed, we come to late uh, May, well, no, actually June, and as I mentioned before, the Confederacy is looking pretty strong. The Union has terrible trouble fighting a general. McClellan was eventually dismissed because he blew the... Uh, opportunity to attack on the peninsula, and Lincoln couldn't stand the fact that he was dilly-dallying around and would never take the offensive, and they couldn't find a decent general. And meanwhile, the Congress passed, and President Lincoln signed on July 1st, the Pacific Railroad Bill. Now, this was the bill that had been held up since 1850 by the Southerners who wanted a Southern line but the Southern representatives are out of Congress now. So Douglas won, and the Pacific Railroad Bill was signed, and Lincoln was allowed to designate the starting point and the gauge of the track. Now, those things don't sound very important, but they are. First, we mentioned before how the starting point was seen as crucial because it was assumed that there would never be more than one railroad to the West Coast. Lincoln chose as the starting point what is now Omaha, Nebraska, across the Missouri River from Council Bluffs, Iowa. 
Council Bluffs hadn't yet been reached by rails from Chicago, but there were three or four lines on the way. Uh, if you look at a map, you'll see that lines converge on Council Bluff from the east, from the northeast, from the southeast, um, every direction. Lines converge on Council Bluffs because the Pacific Railroad was to start at Council Bluffs and Omaha. The second thing was the gauge. Now, we today have one standard gauge in nearly all of North America. There are a few minor exceptions, but for the most part, if you ride a train in North America today, the gauge of the track will be four feet, eight and a half inches. And how do they come to such a uh, peculiar, odd number? Well, the first locomotives that were used in the United States were built in Britain, where the gauge of the roads uh, was four feet, eight and a half inches, because the roads had been laid by the Romans, and over the centuries, grooves where the cartwheels ran uh, were cut in the, in the Roman stone roads. Four feet, eight and a half inches was wide enough for two horses abreast pulling a carriage. And so the ruts in the road became the same distance apart as the rails when they started laying rails. So that the Stevenson British gauge, was four feet, eight and a half, became the northern standard gauge. But in the south, where there was no connection between many railroads in those days. They started out connecting rivers and canals and things. And so it was never uh, the idea of a national railroad network interchanging locomotives and cars wholesale uh, didn't exist. And the South developed a predominant gauge of its own, five feet, three and a half inches wider than the northern gauge. Well, what that meant was that a train on a five-foot gauge track couldn't run on a four-eight-and-a-half northern track, nor could a northern standard gauge train run on the southern tracks. You can see what kind of a impediment that was to a nationalized system. And I could talk about this uh, more, but I'm going to get on because we're really, you know, using time. Anyway, Lincoln designated the gauge of the Pacific Railroad to be four feet eight and a half inches, which immediately shut southern commerce off from any chance of using the Union Pacific, Central Pacific Railroad. A huge, huge advantage for the North, an advantage so great that eventually the southern lines were all forced to change over uh, the gauge from five feet to four feet, eight and a half. And that happened about 1880 or 1881. Uh, every line in the South had to shut down while the tracks were regaged and locomotives and cars were regaged so that they could run on the same same gauge track as the north. And Lincoln also had one other effect, uh, thing to do with the Northern uh, Transcontinental Railroad, the first one. The grade grades on that line were restricted to 2.2%. That means two feet and uh, two-tenths of a foot um, for every 100 feet forward. That's the maximum grade. In other words, you couldn't have a grade of three feet in a in 100 feet or four feet in 100 feet. It had to be no more than two feet two, 2.2% out of 100 feet. So 
that grade established the maximum grade for just about all the, uh, the railroads in the United States. There were a few exceptions, but uh, for the most part, that's been the most steep grade uh, that's operated by a standard gauge railroad. And all that was established by Abraham Lincoln personally in 1861. The very next day, July 2nd, Lincoln completed the trifecta by signing the land-grant college bill. This was another sponsored by Justin Morrill of Vermont. And what it did was to give federal land in the West to the states on condition that the states use the, the proceeds from that land, the sale of that land, to start colleges which would teach agriculture, mechanical engineering, for example, and military science, creating officers for the Army. In other words, the Land-Grant College Act was an educational bill aimed at increasing the nation's ability to produce farmers, uh, mechanics, and military officers. The very first land-grant college was what is now called Michigan State. Uh, originally, it was Michigan A&M, Agricultural and Mechanical. And we had a lot of A&Ms uh, up until uh, I was a young man. There were still lots of A&Ms, Colorado A&M, and uh, oh, I don't know, many of them. Uh, the only one I can think of now is Texas A&M. It's the only one that hasn't changed its name. And Texas A&M, if you know anything about it, until maybe 30 years ago, was a military school. It had no women, and it had a, a corps of cadets, military school. Uh, not, no longer, but it, it was until the middle of the 20th century. So here's the, what do you call a fourth a quadfecta. The tariff for business, the land grant, uh, what would you call it, the, the Homestead Act, rather, for individual people who wanted to move west, the moral... Uh, land Grant College Act to educate people and the Pacific Railroad Act to tie California and the wealth of Nevada to the Union. All of this accomplished within a few months. But Lincoln wasn't done. In the summer of 1862, uh, the Confederacy reached what may have been its peak uh, when all their armies were moving forward at one time, and especially in the first couple of weeks of September. In August, a Confederate army under Lee absolutely decimated a northern army at that same old Bull Run battlefield. For the second time, there had been a northern disaster in conflict of arms at Bull Run. And this time, Lee moved on and invaded the north with his army, invaded Maryland. And then on September 17th, met a Union army twice the size of his, stood his ground and wasn't forced to retreat, but held his ground the next day. McClellan was back in command, didn't attack, and Lee managed to pull out and go back south with what was left of his army. But it was not a very clear-cut victory if it was a victory. Uh, especially when you have twice as many troops and the best you can get is a staggering draw. But, well, Lincoln had been thinking about emancipation as a wartime measure. 
And in July, he put forth before his cabinet an early draft of what became later known as the Emancipation Proclamation. And the cabinet was against it. And Lincoln persisted. He said, we must destroy slavery. It's a moral wrong, and we need to do it to win this war. Well, William Seward, the Secretary of State, said, yeah, I agree with you. You know, we, we may have to do it, but we can't do it while we're losing battle after battle. And then came Second Manassas, which was a total disaster. So Lincoln promised that he would not issue the proclamation until the North got a victory. And Antietam, on September 17th, while it was hardly a decisive battle, became, in a way, the most important battle of the war, because Lincoln took the repulse of Lee's army as enough of a victory, and five days later announced the stunner, the Emancipation Proclamation, on September 22nd. So, within a matter of May 20th to September 22nd, everything in the country changed, and it changed with the military situation. By September 22nd, when the Emancipation Proclamation was first announced, the whole course of the war changed. It was no longer simply a war to hold the Union together. It became a moral crusade against slavery. It prevented Britain and France from ever uh, supporting the Confederacy with troops because they couldn't be caught on the side of slavery against the uh, anti-slavery war. It changed everything. And the economic program that the Republicans passed, including the Homestead Act and the, the high tariff, the moral tariff, and the Land-Grant College Act and the Pacific Railroad Act, changed the country completely economically, turned it more and more into a, a commercial and industrial country rather than a slave uh, plantation society as the South had been. There were more millionaires in the South before the Civil War than there in the North. After the war, the South was impoverished for a century, maybe still suffering from the effects of the Civil War. So the summer of 1862 was the, the great summer, the, the summer that changed everything. Anybody out there? Did I put everybody to sleep? Hello? Hello out there. It's Mary Ellen. It was very fascinating, very fascinating. And as a history major, I do remember this. Vacation, the Chicago Fire, 1871. Oh, yeah. And I'm really excited about that. October 8, 1871, the day the city right. burned down. Uh, in October 8, uh, 1871, the city burned down. October 8, 1959, the White Sox lost the World Series. Chicago is still waiting for something good to happen on October the 8th. <laughs> very good. Ira, thank you so much. Great job, and I'll be in touch. Thank you very much, Bob. Okay, Ira, thank Thanks you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Okay. Thank you. All Thanks, right. guys, for being here. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.